Chapter 1. Up the Devolution The Earth's peoples are being herded into an ideological pen by advocates of globalism. At the very moment large, unwieldy political agglomerations like the Soviet Union are disintegrating into states and regions with older and more authentic pedigrees. This political restructuring of the USSR has a special appeal to population groups that were forced to shed or dilute their historical uniqueness when they were incorporated into a large multiracial, multicultural nation or empire. The United States has not yet reached the level of decomposition of what was once the communist fatherland, but its cultural and racial centrifuge spins faster every month. It is hardly surprising that the population group which comprises the majority of a country will not voluntarily give up its preferred status or see its power appreciably weakened. No group wishes to watch what it regards as its own country being chopped up, especially in the case where one or more minorities has acquired as much or more political and economic power than what Germans call the Staatsvolk. Some members of what was once a majority may be globalist at heart, but they cannot stomach any political developments that successfully diminish their own sovereignty or elevated status. What has been largely missing from the devolution movement so far has been a carefully formulated line of action to give it logical substance. One way to get in the devolutionary mood is to do some philosophical housecleaning. Despite what Thomas Jefferson has drilled into our heads, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, is not the be-all and end-all of the human condition. Neither is that triple-pronged French shibboleth, liberté, égalité, fraternité, nor the doltish Marxist commandment, from each according to his ability, to each according to his needs. All these articles of faith were promulgated at times and places far removed from those which exist today. Indeed, Mr. Jefferson, we still are very interested in life. But today we want life for the planet, not just for ourselves. Life for plants, animals, protozoa, and chromosomes. There was no such word as ecology at the time of the American, French, and Russian revolutions. There is such a word today. All of us would do well to add it to our shrinking vocabulary. Liberté? In our lifetime, we have had some, lost some, and recovered some. The course of liberty often follows the arc of a pendulum, from little to excessive and back to little again. Most states at most times have had less rather than more liberty, but kings, priests, lawyers, even lowly citizens, have at one moment or another enjoyed sufficient liberty of thought and action to try to loosen the shackles of church and state. Taboos exist in totalitarian states. Taboos exist in democracies. Breaking taboos in authoritarian regimes may mean death. In democracies, the penalty may be social ostracism and penury. In either case, liberty is significantly curbed. Liberty is always relative. Essentially, it is a byproduct of the will of the people, the lay of the land, and the condition of the state. Those who cry for more liberty should really cry for a higher culture that recognizes the value of liberty. Who or what can produce a higher culture? A more intelligent body politic would be a first step. Egalité? No one is equal to anyone else, not even identical twins. Politicians in democracies, instead of rhapsodizing over equality, should accept the fact of human inequality and devote their talents to making the best, not the worst of it. Every sane person is fit for some occupation, 
for some niche in life. Constant appeals to equality become psychological sores. We are what we are. The trouble starts when we let envy and resentment deny our differences. The acceptance and recognition of these variances is a break to envy and a spur to a higher appreciation of the richness of the human tapestry. When equality is reduced from an impossible ideal and an excuse for violence to a meaningless cliché, everyone will breathe easier. Our stay on this blue planet is a short one. We should make the most of these fleeting moments and not waste them at the urging of demagogues who urge us to achieve the unachievable. Let us be thankful for our inequality. What a drab world this would be if we were all cast in the same mold. Fraternité Obviously all men have similarities, just as they have differences, but they are never brothers. It is wiser to base our behavior on this truth than to pretend otherwise. Our ability does not make us fraternal. Fraternity applies to people who feel close to each other, people of similar race and culture. To sell brotherhood to men and women of different races, separated not only by genetics but by obvious differences in religion, art, language, and historical background, is an exercise in futility. The brotherhood based on slogans, not genes, will snap under the least pressure. Like liberty and equality, fraternity has a pretty sound, but at bottom, it is an ignis fatuus that has led us, and continues to lead us, into a quicksand of broken hopes and promises. Woodrow Wilson called on the brotherhood of man to make the world safe for democracy. Communists called upon the proletariat to rise up and cast off its chains. All such words do is deceive good men by overloading their hearts with false expectations. As to the pursuit of happiness, this materialistic, hedonistic goal, which tends to define mankind as a sort of pleasure-seeking machine, is hardly a worthy one. Of all the pursuits to choose from, happiness should come after, not before, education, art, philosophy, health, and good government. Happiness can be pursued for itself, but it is more likely to be achieved vicariously by the pursuit of more significant and meaningful goals. For this reason, hedonism remains the great chink in Jefferson's philosophical and political armor. Men should respect, not deify, both individual and collective freedom. There are nobler and higher aims, such as preparing to climb the next rung in the evolutionary ladder. Just as Homo sapiens evolved from Homo erectus and Homo erectus from earlier hominids and earlier hominids from primates, Homo supersapiens must evolve from Homo sap. The word must is used advisedly because the alternative to upward evolution is downward and retrograde evolution. If civilization can slip back into barbarism, as it often does, who can say that this time it will not permanently remain in reverse gear? The scene in some of the world's largest cities suggests that modern man is already degrading into a more primitive species. Who can know for certain that man will not someday decline into a lower order organism and disappear forever? The possibilities are endless for his downgoing, the chances for his upgoing quite limited. If, thanks to some beneficial mutation, man has the ability and the will to make the quantum jump into a higher evolutionary grade, the question arises, from what ethnic group will he emerge? Everyone, of course, will root for his home team.
Members of the Northern European branch of the white race, who have been top dogs until recently, should make every effort to keep their group in the pink of mental and physical condition if they are not going to lose out permanently to the Japanese or members of some other mongoloid race. As with gifted children who are singled out and assigned to advanced classes, so the more gifted members of every race should be provided with whatever is needed to help fulfill their individual and collective potential. It goes without saying that these special students should not have their education slowed by being forced to move at the pace of less capable and less astute learners. Gifted pupils often become so bored at the repetitive lessons required by the slow student that they may develop a lifelong antipathy to education. At the same time, slow learners are made tragically aware of their own deficiencies by being compelled to compete with bright pupils. Rather than continue this hopelessly unequal battle, they drop out. When we speak of intelligence, we mean more than verbal acumen and quick thinking. We are also speaking of such important character traits as a fine sense of moral responsibility, the ability to concentrate, and a serious attitude towards life. The absence of these and similar traits in a genius with an IQ of 180 could make him more of a menace than a boon to mankind. It follows that the population groups best qualified to produce the ubermensch will need much more than a high genetic quotient of intelligence. Assuming that members of the northern European branch of the white race and their descendants overseas are still contemporary favorites in the evolutionary race, this is not to say that other races should consider themselves out of the running. Genetics can play strange tricks. Scores of white, black, and yellow launching pads should be constructed to speed the advent of a higher life form. In the meantime, every race cannot help but obtain immense physical and mental benefits from strenuous competitive efforts in advancement. Since this competition throws every population group back upon its own capabilities and resources, it will discourage interference and bullying from other groups. Nothing distorts and retards true cultural development more than interference by outsiders, either through what is called cultural imperialism, direct military intervention, or massive immigration. One of the worst cases of what might be called culture-side was the West's high-handed intrusion into the lives and customs of the Polynesian peoples. White diseases, white religion, white trade, white mores all combine to corrupt one of the world's most colorful lifestyles. Such acts of desecration, with which history is replete, must be stopped at all costs. Invaders, whether armed with holy books, machine guns, or alien customs, bring with them cultural as well as physical diseases, for which indigenous peoples have little or no immunity. The loss of morale and feelings of inferiority caused by the presence of technologically and industrially advanced strangers can well be a prelude to ethnic dissolution and anime. Whatever elan the natives have managed to retain will be wasted on cultural preservation rather than on cultural advancement. Separation and reduction into small-scale political units, not accelerated coagulation into ever-larger nations, empires, and spheres of interest, should be the political prescription for the future. But since this goes against the grain of globalist thinking, which still holds sway in most Western power centers, devolution will only become mainstream politics after a revolutionary shift in popular attitudes.
Some parts of the West have already entered a tentative devolutionary phase, the centrifugal breakaway into disparate geographical, racial, and cultural divisions now occurring in Eastern Europe is resurrecting and accelerating long-held separatist feelings elsewhere. Paradoxically, separatism may be the West's best hope of holding together. Only after the diseased whole has fragmented can the pieces be rearranged, reorganized, and put back together to comprise a whole that is both healthier and greater than the sum of its parts. Separatism Population groups are not equal. No matter what liberal social scientists tell us, either out of the goodness of their hearts or for less charitable reasons. The most effective method to reduce the social frictions caused by inherent group inequalities is separation, a step which, as we shall see further on in this study, represents significant progress along the road to the ethnostate. Inequalities become much more apparent and galling when different races and subraces are forced to live side by side, where their unequal performance and different behavior cannot be concealed. Gathering men and women of similar biological and cultural background into a state of their own eliminates the invidious racial comparisons of test scores in classrooms and achievements in later life. In an ethnostate where the competition is limited to members of the same race, no racial factors will be dredged up to explain why some citizens get ahead and some are left behind. Whatever domestic disparities exist will have to be ascribed to individual and class differences. Perhaps most important, the envy and frustration inherent in losing will be greatly reduced. Losers are less put out and angered when they are beaten by one of their own kind. Inequality among races living side by side sparks fearsome amounts of political, economic, and social stress. Class inequalities, though always harbingers of instability, seldom boil over until the economic differences become so sharp that the poor are driven to desperation. Individual inequalities incite criminality, but otherwise are fairly manageable. Despite their different prefixes, devolution and evolution are synergistic, that is, they give each other a political and social boost. Evolution propagates variety, opposing any drift towards genetic sameness and cultural conformity tends to keep Homo sapiens on a progressive evolutionary path. A world of political mosaics, a world of ethnostates, a devolutionary world, keeps the faith, so to speak, with Darwin and Mendel. If mankind were one, one plague might be its death now. Everyone would have the same lack of immunity to a new lethal disease. As an article in the Los Angeles Times, April 26, 1990, put it, quote, If all family members are genetically alike, all will respond to changes in their environment in the same way. If one can't survive, all will perish. Unquote. Recall the Irish famine of the 1840s. Since all the potatoes were genetically similar, there were no varieties to resist the fungus that caused anywhere from a million to two million deaths and changed the racial composition of the United States. Had the Irish cultivated several varieties of potatoes, one or two might have had the genes to resist the fungus, which would have saved much of the crop. A monoracial humanity would be extremely vulnerable to any outbreak of a serious infectious disease, whereas the political and cultural isolation and geographical separation provided by ethnostates 
would significantly increase the possibility that some population groups would have varying degrees of resistance to different diseases, either old or new. An increase in human variety would also mean an increase in the possibility of genetic improvements. Mutations are always floating about in the human population, most bad, a few beneficial. Variety increases not only the number of mutations, but the chance that a very few of them, the beneficial ones, could actually be preserved and distributed throughout an entire ethnic group. In carefully tended gardens of genes, who can say what biological blooms might eventually dazzle the eye? Is it any wonder that the ethnostate can be designated as the one form of statehood with solid scientific underpinnings? We are told that some 95% of all the species that ever existed on this planet have become extinct. At the current rate of habitat destruction, another million species of plants, animals, insects, fish, and birds will have disappeared by the end of this century. As a result, several governments have established biospheres, special environments, to save endangered plants and animals from extinction. Carrie Fowler, director of the Rural Advancement Fund International, declares, quote, My guess is we've got another decade to collect genetic diversity, or the game's over, unquote. Considered in this light, the ethnostate concept gains greatly in importance. It promises a ready-made biosphere for safeguarding not only plants and animals, but also human beings. Secession one form of devolution is secession, defined as the voluntary severance of one part of the body politic from the whole body. Peaceful secession calls for an agreement of the two parties involved, the secessionist and the rulers of the state from which they wish to secede. This agreement is generally hard to obtain, with the result that secession has often provoked bloody civil wars, one of the most notable being the fratricidal conflict in the United States in 1861-65. Secession, which is not always resisted or contested, takes place most often during the disintegration of empires and multiracial states. A prime example or examples are the many secessions now underway in the detritus of the Soviet Union. In many such cases, the spin-off allows long-suppressed peoples to rediscover their old identity and recover their long-lost independence. The births of Czechoslovakia, Hungary, and Yugoslavia, successor states to the Austro-Hungarian Empire after World War I, were sometimes violent, sometimes peaceful exercises in devolution, though the further fragmentation of Yugoslavia seven decades later was bathed in blood. One of the sacred texts associated with an act of secession is the Declaration of Independence, which begins, quote, When, in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and nature's God entitle them, unquote, these lofty words, written by a Jefferson inspired by roseate visions of freedom and liberty, were often heard in both the American Revolution and the war between the states. The first, a violent but successful instance of secession, the second, a violent but unsuccessful one. The genetic damage suffered in the former conflict was minor, in the latter it was immense, 
so immense that all the advantages that came from binding the torn nation together and making possible its eventual rise to superpower status may have been negated by the loss of hundreds of thousands of potential fathers and millions of unborn sons and daughters of the young nation's founding stock. The severe drain on the reproductive potential of the core population group opened the door to the importation of vast numbers of white immigrants of disparate races and cultures. Secession being a very serious act, it must at all costs be handled wisely and diplomatically. It would hardly be beneficial to a population group to secede from a large state and establish its own ethnostate if the latter is immediately overrun and ravaged by the same state from which it seceded or by a neighboring nation with expansionist tendencies. It makes little sense for a new state to risk certain war or invasion while it is in its weak formative stages and while its chances of survival are minimal. Secession should be carefully planned and only undertaken when the time is ripe and the possibility of success extremely high. As has happened all too often in history, secessions have ended in massacres and in the extinction or near extinction of the secessionists. Many, perhaps most, successful secessions have taken place in stages, first a campaign for federation, then for confederation, then for partial autonomy, as in the Swiss cantons. The larger state will resist much less vigorously if it is prepared, broken in, as it were, for eventual separatism. When faced with a sudden separatist coup or fait accompli, forceful repression is not an uncommon response. Devolutionaries The theme of devolution has been touched on by other writers who, while carefully avoiding the racial factor, have pointed out that bigness is a principal cause of contemporary social problems. In his study, The Breakdown of Nations, Leopold Kohr, an Austrian-born economist, advances a cyclic theory of history that oscillates slowly back and forth from what he calls districts and small city-states to integrationist empires, the latter becoming so huge, so far removed from man's original tribal state, that they inevitably collapse of their own weight. The fragments then proceed to rearrange and reorganize themselves in more or less the same provinces, regions, territories, or districts from which the nations and empires originally arose. In regard to old European provinces, Kor writes, quote, their restoration would consequently not mean the creation of an artificial pattern, but a return to Europe's natural political landscape. No new names would have to be invented. The old ones are still in existence, as are the regions and peoples which they define. It is the great powers which lack the real basis of existence and are without autochthonous, self-sustaining sources of strength. It is they that are artificial structures, holding together a medley of more or less unwilling little tribes. There is no Great British nation in Great Britain. What we find are the English, Scots, Irish, Cornish, Welsh, and the Islanders of Man. In Italy we find the Lombards, Tyrolians, Venetians, Sicilians, or Romans. In Germany, we find Bavarians, Saxons, Hessians, Rhinelanders, or Brandenburgers. And in France, we find Normans, Catalans, Alsatians, Basques, or Burgundians. These little nations came into existence by themselves, while the great powers had to be created by force and a series of bloodily unifying wars. Unquote. 
E.F. Schumacher pleads the case for smallness from a less political and more aesthetic perspective. In his bestseller, Small is Beautiful, he catalogs all the various aspects of culture that have become too large either to be understood or appreciated. The late German-born architect, Mies van der Rohe, although he has designed several large buildings in North America, became at least a part-time member of the Micro Club, following the utterance of his widely publicized aphorism, Less is More. No one has put the case for ethnostates in more concise and more convincing words than Bob Hunter in his column for the North Shore News, June 6, 1990, a small suburban paper in Vancouver, British Columbia. Quote, if the world was to be divided up into, say, 2,500 little countries, and the boundaries of each country were drawn to fit the contours of the national biological regions the natives inhabited, each country would become responsible for a shared biozone. In theory, the inhabitants of each such region would have every reason to work together to preserve their area. Moreover, because they were indigenous, they could be counted on to have the best understanding of how to truly manage the environment." Unquote. Hunter compared the Soviet Union, before its dissolution, to Canada in terms that would delight the most straight-laced ethnostatist. Quote, Neither nation has any organic tribal basis. Each represents a long string of conquests and occupations and deals and rip-offs culminating in two almost polar opposite political systems which are nevertheless almost identical at their core. Canada and the USSR are incredibly centralized, bloated administrations, both of them, both are bureaucracies gone mad, having far too much control over affairs in distant parts of the Imperium." Unquote. Hunter might have included the United States in the above paragraph. However, neither Kaur, Schumacher, nor Hunter penetrated the heart of the matter because none based his devolutionary proposals on the racial element which can make or break any political entity. Kaur advocates the breakup of the superstate into small states but never mentions the all-important biological aspects of the geographical and demographical shrinkage he is advocating. Small states that are home to several races and several cultures are no more, indeed often less, stable than heterogeneous superstates. The provinces and districts that Core praises were, and in many cases still are, monoracial, yet he avoids any allusion to their racial homogeneity. Nor will he admit that his cyclic theory of history does not apply to most of the world's black and brown societies, many of which have never ventured into bigness. As the Odinus, Volume 95, 1986, comments, quote, If a society's physical size alone were the determining factor in unleashing its creativity, then every race, every people, and every nation at some time or another should have experienced a blossoming of culture comparable to that of Europe at its minuscule best. Such has definitely not been the case. Unquote. Similarly, Schumacher advances almost every argument he can summon up to make his case for smallness, except the monoracial one. Kaur was half right in predicting the instability of nations and empires once they approach gigantism. But he was probably wrong when he wrote that fragmentation will only occur after a war between the superpowers. The Soviet Union has already fissioned, and there is as yet no World War III in sight, though smaller regional wars are always a possibility, particularly in ethnic hotspots like South Africa and the Middle East. 
As for the fission of the only remaining superpower, forces are currently at work which practically ensure that the America of AD 2050 will bear little resemblance in size and shape to the America of the 1990s. Manageable Size The basic sine qua non of an ethnostate, the prop on which it succeeds or fails, is racial and cultural homogeneity. We have already suggested that a second prop, almost as basic, is smallness. No government can be truly effective over the long haul if it presides over a huge territory, no matter how well integrated racially and culturally the population may be. The more distant geographically government is from the governed, the more removed it will be from the real concerns of its people. Before proceeding any further, it should be pointed out that the size of the ethnostate not only refers to territory, but also to population. If the personalization of government is to be one of the ethnostate's principal aims, the governed must not exceed a reasonable number. It is simply impossible for even the most ingenious statesman to govern a country of 50, 100, or 200 million people without losing the personal touch that makes government acceptable, supportive, and supportable. Thomas Jefferson's emphasis on ward government, in which most of the governing is exercised at the local level, almost seems as if he had an ethnostate in mind. A small state with a small homogeneous population is obviously easier to manage than a large state with a heterogeneous population. Anyone who has ever attended a town meeting in a large city would probably agree. More often than not, such confabs break up into acrimonious shouting matches. Most large states obviously have an advantage over small ones in military resources, though not necessarily in military morale. Accordingly, all ethnostates should be kept as small as possible, both in regard to territory and population, if only to prevent the formation of big states whose size alone might tempt them to overwhelm a smaller neighbor. For defense against large ethnostates and large states that have not yet become ethnostates, economic and military alliances should be entered into by smaller states to protect their sovereignty. Large states that exhibit signs of aggression should be informed in no uncertain terms that an attack on one member of such an alliance would be viewed as an attack on all members. As will be pointed out in Chapter 5, nuclear weapons by their very awesomeness favor the defense of small states. What benefits would victory in war bring to an empire or nation that lost half or more of its industry, its cities, and its population to a few well-aimed nuclear warheads on long-range missiles? The small state that launched the missiles would be utterly destroyed, but at what cost to the large state? Because they still live in the world's largest territorial state, some Russians would like to see their ponderous Russian Federation divided into a European Russia, and in Asian Russia, Siberia. Japan, the largest homogeneous nation, has far too many people for personalized government. The Japanese, if made aware of the advantages of decentralized rule, might allow greater autonomy to the reconstructed historical provinces and to their small and powerless Ainu and Korean minorities. Japan, by the way, is not so culturally homogeneous that the Japanese cannot tell the geographical or provincial origins of their fellow citizens by their accents. Canada, another of the gargantuan states, has already entered a centrifugal phase. 
The French-speaking part of the country is moving towards almost total independence, while in Western Canada, an increasingly vocal movement wants to secede from the government in Ottawa and shake off the financial control of Toronto. After Quebec spins off, Nova Scotia and Newfoundland will be cut off from the rest of English-speaking Canada. There is already talk in these two provinces about joining the United States. America, another grotesquely oversized nation, has already become a mosaic, though not quite the gorgeous mosaic, of New York City Mayor David Dinkins. Hispanics, largely from Mexico, crowd the Southwest. Cubans have all but taken over South Florida. Negroes, 30 million strong, are jammed into inner-city ghettos and scattered throughout the rural South. Large numbers of Jews, representing the top economic echelons in the largest cities, are particularly influential in New York, Los Angeles, and Washington. Southern and Eastern Europeans populate the shrinking industrial areas of the East and Midwest. Most Americans of British descent have deserted the cities for the suburbs. Most Germans and Scandinavians live in the Midwest. French Canadians have concentrated in northern New England. Irish in urban areas, Scotch-Irish in the South, most Asians in Hawaii and California, most Indians on their reservations. All these bits and pieces of American demography are available, if not yet willing, to be transformed with greater or lesser difficulty into separate ethnostates. No hard and fast limits should be set on the size of an ethnostate's population or territory. There are too many imponderables and exceptions. Maximum area might be 36,000 square miles, roughly that of Portugal. Maximum population, 15 million, the number of Hollanders. But racial and cultural homogeneity must be the deciding factors, not area and population. Identity One of the great psychological props of the ethnostate is that it will provide its citizens with a sense of identity, which in these pluralistic times is often hard to come by. Identity starts with self, proceeds to the family, and extends to the neighborhood, town, city, county, borough, department, France, state, U.S. and Germany, and finally, to the nation. Remove any of these orbits surrounding the ethnic nucleus and a person's sense of identity is greatly weakened. Throughout the West, individual and group identity is at risk because it is increasingly difficult for a citizen of a multiracial nation to feel he has much in common with a fellow citizen who, it is increasingly likely, may be of a different race and have emerged from an entirely different cultural background. The more people differ racially and culturally within a country, the more difficult it becomes for members of the different races to believe they share a common peoplehood. As a result, in a heterogeneous state, the basic psychological need of every human being, the firm sense of belonging, is in short supply. The German word Heimat has a stronger emotional tug than homeland, but both words convey the same meaning. Heimat stands for more than country or nation. It is a state of mind, a form of allegiance, an intensified feeling of belonging. It is the deep affection of the part for the whole. Heimat fuses the identity of the individual with the identity of the group and the habitat of the group. It incites people to capitalize on their cultural and genetic endowment. People who live in a multiracial or multicultural state do not have a high mat. Individual and group identity can be viewed as the backbone of the human psyche, 
an unbent vertebra of pride, behavior, and character. Much is made these days of individual rights. Heimat is a group right. Heimat is seek findet, not merely finding oneself, but finding one's self. Every state worthy of the name recognizes the need for every individual and every family to have a home. The ethnostate is designed to fulfill the equally important need of all men and women for a community, for a collective home. Can a person's nationality be identified by his appearance, dress, and behavior? In some areas of the world, the answer is still an automatic yes. Not so long ago, practically everyone on earth carried his birthplace or citizenship on his sleeve. Tall, blonde, long-headed men or women were tagged as Northern Europeans, or at least of Northern European descent. Until the 1950s, an American was not an Indian, Negro, or Asian, not even a dark white from Mediterranean lands. He was a member of the dominant, mostly fair-complexioned race from Northern and Western Europe that in a few centuries had turned a sparsely inhabited wilderness into a thriving world power. The word alienation, a favorite of Hegel and Marx, adequately describes the pessimistic mood of the majority of whites in the largest western cities, which have become refuges for myriads of immigrants who neither look, speak, nor act like their hosts, the numbers of whom are now declining as fast as the numbers of newcomers are multiplying. When strangers comprise a significant portion of the population of a country, when outsiders form their own neighborhoods in what was once our neighborhoods, we start to have doubts about who we are. Whites in America used to be told that they were not only white, but belonged to a certain group of whites. Since the 1930s, however, few anthropologists have written or lectured about the racial differences that distinguish many Northern Europeans, Nordics, from Central Europeans, Alpines, and Southern Europeans, Mediterraneans. Today, partly due to the lack of such information, miscegenation in or out of marriage is busy dissolving racial distinctions almost everywhere in the West. Massive immigration, forced integration in education, employment, and public housing, the low birth rate of whites, and high birth rate of non-whites, all such factors are watering down and in some cases obliterating the objective and subjective ways people depend on to establish and solidify their group consciousness. Since the loss of identity affects the group as much as the individual, the difficulties of governing mount as the centrifugal forces that pull nations, neighborhoods, and families apart grow stronger and the centripetal forces that bind them together grow weaker. The upshot is that multiracial states, the states most seriously threatened by the dynamics of fragmentation, are offered a choice of two alternatives, either to hold the centrifugal forces in check by some form of absolutism, or succumb to them and let the state dissolve into smaller, more homogeneous substates where bonds of race, culture, and history are strong enough to keep the social order functioning. An important psychological factor must be reckoned with in any serious discussion of alienation at the national level. What happens when most of the inhabitants of a country no longer employ the personal pronoun we in describing themselves and their fellow citizens? If the country has become a welter of different races and cultures, the we will eventually come to stand for nothing more than a group of occupants of a particular geographical or demographical segment of the country in question. 
It is a truism that the average individual will generally fight to protect himself, his family, and his property. But will he fight for what he no longer feels is his if we no longer exist and has been replaced by them? It is at this point that the intensity or lack of intensity of group consciousness may actually determine the groups and the states' survival. The symbol of America, Uncle Sam, still displays white features, at least at this writing. But how much longer will 30 million Negroes, 22 million Hispanics, and millions of Asians be content to accept a national logo or trademark which represents a race different from their own? What will be the color of Uncle Sam when non-whites outnumber whites sometime in the middle of the 21st century if present immigration and birth rate trends continue? Symbols in the form of flags, national anthems, even racial stereotypes can be effective in bringing and holding people together. But when they are no longer symbolic of the population at large, they become divisive. The expression, my country, generally includes a mental picture of a flag, a series of remembered historical events, and the faces of noted public figures. But when the paraphernalia of patriotism becomes less and less meaningful to an ever larger share of the population, unity transmogrifies into disunity. Instead of a common history, each population group begins to compose its own interpretation of the past. It is not just race that divides one nation from another and one man from another. Distance and geographical isolation, economic and regional distinctions, language and historical differences all play a part. Only rarely do racial similarity and a shared culture overcome linguistic differences, as in Switzerland, or religious differences, as in half-Protestant and half-Catholic Holland. In good economic times, in times of prosperity, low unemployment, and high morale, the bonding forces of the state are weakened, only to strengthen again in a political or economic crisis or after defeat in war. When most everyone is doing fairly well and advancing a few notches on the comfort scale, racial and cultural antagonisms have a tendency to be sidetracked. They quickly come to the fore again when the unemployment rate mounts and family budgets decline to a bare subsistence level. Rules of the Game The ethnostate is intended to set the stage for the next step in political evolution, perhaps even human evolution. It represents a sweeping new approach to politics, one that differs greatly from the New World Order, the Wilsonian proclamation that emanated from the mouth of President George Bush during his war against Iraq. To narrow the fight for racial survival on appeals to tradition and the glories of the past definitely becomes counterproductive. Such outworn pleading no longer evokes any genuine response from political activists. It tells them that it is high time for them to become statesmen and political philosophers, high time for them to come up with something new, something right for the times, something to lift hearts. If the Earth, a lonely planet in a lonely galaxy, had feelings, they might resemble those of present-day whites caught in the ethnic kaleidoscope of a multiracial state. Races cannot save other races. Races can only save themselves. The beauty of the ethnostate is that, Although it rests solidly on race, it promises great benefits to all races. In no way does it suggest the superiority of any one race, sub-race, or population group. The predicament of whites in America, and to a lesser extent of whites in other parts of the fading white world, is that many of them know what should be done, but are ashamed to lift a finger. 
the media, having made any commonsensical approach to race disrespectable, many whites are afraid to make known their unwavering dislike for the shape and content of what is called popular opinion, the erroneous term given to a distillate of the opinions of special interest groups. What a strange breed of prisoners whites have become. They know how to escape, but are afraid to take the first step. They know where the reef is, but keep sailing directly into it. If whites really believed the present trend of political, economic, and social decay was irreversible, they would not try to slow the downhill rush, but accelerate it. With the arrival of total chaos, proposals for drastic solutions would become less censored and more popular. Whites would have a better chance of surviving if they could start with a clean slate, provided enough whites still remain to build on the ruins. In political geography, smallness is not necessarily a handicap or a sign of weakness. A small, preponderantly Euro-American state cut out of the dying husk of America would be a step forward, not a step backward in statecraft. The separatism already rampant in the late 20th century United States would make the task of forming ethnostates much easier. The Negroization and Hispanicizing of some of the largest American cities have aided and abetted white flight to the suburbs. The population shifts have not gone unnoticed by the two major political parties. As the trend continues and race, despite laws and regulations to the contrary, becomes the crucial determinant of living space, whites will be more reluctant than ever to associate with non-whites. The condition of the inner cities is such that no promises or bribes from the integrationist government would be sufficient to persuade white families, particularly those that managed to escape, to move there. The free riders of civilization, the worshippers of materialism, the liberal and conservative stick-in-the-muds, the religious hierarchies, the fanatical defenders of the status quo, the rich who fear that change, any change, will upset their golden apple carts, all such creatures will strongly oppose any serious step toward activating the ethnostate solution. Their primary tactic will be to accuse ethnostate proponents of deliberately and maliciously trying to destroy a great country with a great history for a variety of evil purposes. As mentioned previously, ethnostates will not preclude certain interregional organizations. In conformity with the thesis that the politics of the future calls for more organization at the bottom, a measure of organization at the top, and much less organization in the middle. Nations, nationhood, and nationality, since they have outgrown their original meanings, should go the way of chattel slavery and child labor. Vive la différence must be the watchword for all those really interested in elevating mankind to a higher, more intelligent, and more creative level of social organization. The economy of the West peaked in the 1980s in an orgy of hedonistic produce and consume. Beholden as ever to the periodic curve, the economy soon ushered in the belt-tightening recession of the early 1990s. Without the racial irritant, the ethnostate would be better able than multiracial states to straighten out that curve. A small homogeneous state, even in the worst of times, is often better equipped to ride out economic booms and busts, if only because its small size makes its economy more flexible, more resilient, and more resistant to control by the vast bureaucracies and mountains of regulations of big government that prevent or fatally postpone remedial action. Jefferson was probably right about economic stagnation being a serious threat to liberty. He thought it critically important that in a crisis, individuals be in a position to exercise their creative and entrepreneurial powers with minimal government interference.
He understood that an economy can hardly flourish in a nation constantly at war with its neighbors. It cannot flourish any better in a nation constantly at war with itself. Trends For a great part of the world, the 20th century has not been an era of peace and plenty. Accordingly, since both fusion and fission pressures are simmering almost everywhere, two powerful political vectors are taking shape. One points backward towards more centralization and authoritarianism, the other forward towards devolution and separatism. It is in step with the latter trend that the concept of the ethnostate assumes greater relevance and immediacy. As mentioned previously, racial integration in the United States has been countered by white flight to the suburbs and rural areas. Simultaneously, legal and illegal immigrants from Mexico and other parts of Latin America are spreading across the face of the land after taking over large areas of Southern California. The Cubanization of South Florida proceeds apace, though there may be some reflux to Cuba when Fidel Castro resigns, dies in bed, or goes the way of his brother dictator in Romania. Concurrently, Soviet Jews are arriving by the tens of thousands. In accord with their innate predisposition for urban living, they prefer to settle in New York, Los Angeles, or other megapolitan areas. Only a self-protective, race-minded people could effectively stop this massive influx. Since no powerful anti-immigration party has yet appeared in the United States, or elsewhere in the West with the exception of the National Front in France, the racial composition of most Western countries is destined to further change. It had been thought that an economic downturn in the host countries might slow or reverse the legal and illegal immigrant flow. But to the average undocumented worker, unemployment in an industrial nation is preferable to a job in his homeland. The standard of living he and his large Hispanic family enjoy while on welfare in California, Texas, and Florida offer them little incentive to return to their hovel in Latin America. It need not be emphasized that these demographic shifts offer many arguments and some opportunities for the establishment of ethnostates. Whether the West core population groups will have sufficient numbers and sufficient will to found such states against the violent opposition of a racial integrationist open-border liberals, and dedicated egalitarians is problematic. With regard to the United States, the most sensible, peaceful, and democratic solution would be the division of the country into a Hispanic state in the Southwest, a Cuban state in South Florida, a black state somewhere in the rural South, and a series of independent Jewish, black, and Asian enclaves in the cities and close-in suburbs where these groups comprise sizable elements of the population. Indians would keep their reservations, which would be combined into ethnostates and placed largely under their control. In respect to white, non-Jewish ethnostates, the United States has no provinces or city-states on the historic European model. It does, however, have regions with historical and cultural traditions, the Deep South, Appalachia, Texas, once an independent republic, New England, the Farm Belt, and the Northwest. Both geography and demography would qualify such areas for ethnostatehood. Where the population has become a welter of different ethnic factions in large metropolitan areas, neighborhoods could be the loci for political, economic, and social groupings. Though too small to qualify as ethnostates, they would be accorded as much independence as reasonably possible. Unwary Allies there are more than a few contemporary political movements nudging the West in the direction of an ethnostate solution, 
though the promoters would strenuously deny having any truck whatever with the theme of this book. One such movement, bioregionalism, is the stamping ground of environmental activists, greens, earth firsters, and a smattering of far-out liberals and politically interested or disinterested conservationists. Thirty delegates took part in the first bioregional congress held in Missouri in October 1980 in the course of which they made plans to set up an ecologically balanced community in Ozarkia. Proposals for other bioregions include Cascadia in western Washington state, Siskiyou in northern California, and Katua in southern Appalachia. 200 delegates representing 80 organizations met in the North American Bioregional Congress held near Kansas City, Missouri in 1984. The following is an excerpt from their statement of principles, quote, Bioregionalism recognizes, nurtures, sustains, and celebrates our local connections with land, plants and animals, rivers, lakes and oceans, air, families, friends, and neighbors, community, native traditions, and systems of production and trade. It is taking the time to learn the possibilities of place. It is a mindfulness of local environment, history, and community aspirations that can lead to a future of safe and sustainable life." Unquote. Unfortunately, the bioregionalist movement soon broke up into squabbling factions. In Los Angeles, one group held compost toilet beach parties, filed suit against a score of nations which possessed or supposedly possessed nuclear weapons, and published something called a Bikeshevik Manifesto. The Ozark Area Community Congress came out for tree rights, animal rights, bacteria rights, even virus rights. The enemy was the Anglos of North America who continued to rape the land, although it was these very Anglos who headed up organizations such as the Sierra Club that were doing the most to protect the environment. Other bioregional splinter groups dabbled in feminism, Marxism, and terrorism. The latter spiked trees, blocked the entrance to cobalt mines, and created general mayhem throughout large areas of the West. One faction lauded the Sandinista regime in Nicaragua for its agricultural policies. Bioregionalists have deliberately avoided the racial factor in their plans and projects. Ecological balance can hardly be obtained without a balanced population. All too frequently, the bioregional movement has fallen into the hands of rootless intellectuals who are the least fit of all persons to establish bioregions, where roots are of paramount importance. Alan Carlson, the editor of Persuasion at Work, a publication put out by the Rockford Institute, writes, quote, True communities are rooted in a self-sacrificing love of soil, family, and tradition, and in the individual's willingness to serve as an exemplar and defender of these. In contrast, bioregionalist loyalties have more to do with hate than love. Intense hatred for others spills over into self-hate, which, simply put, does not inspire sacrifice and cannot sustain community action over time." Unquote. There has been some meaningful political activity in Europe on behalf of various aspects of bioregionalism, mainly by green parties, who have seats in parliaments of several European countries. But most Greens, like most American bioregionalists, are more interested in talk than action. They constantly theorize about saving the environment while evincing varying degrees of affection for erstwhile Marxist governments that have probably done more lasting damage to nature's kingdom, Chernobyl, soft coal mining, 
and ancient factories that erupt more pollution than products than all the industrial nations of the West put together. Bioregionalism relies on geography and nature, not race, to determine the location, size, and shape of a state. Those areas of the Earth's surface which have similar weather, terrain, flora, and fauna should, in the bioregionist view, be detached from huge, unwieldy nation-states and reorganized into separate, independent political units. The founding father of bioregionalism is Swiss biologist Raymond Dassman, whose monograph, published in 1973 by the Union for Conservation of Nature and Natural Resources in Morges, Switzerland, defined bioregions as ecologically uniform areas where the native species of plants and animals vary by no more than 20%. In bioregions, Dassman wrote, people find a, quote, sense of identity and peace, unquote, and learn, quote, to recognize flora and fauna, to respond to its climatic regime, to become familiar with its limits, unquote. Picking up on Dasman, poet Alan Van Newkirk founded the Institute for Bioregional Research in Nova Scotia and dedicated it to the reconstruction of wild areas that had been deformed, as he described it, by culture. To achieve his objective, he advocated the use of language, poetry, and myth, quote, as tools of bioregional cognition of the Indo-European, Amerindian, and other traditions, unquote. One of the more prominent spokesmen for bioregionalism is Kirkpatrick Sale, a strident Luddite who deplores science and wants us all to return to the bosom of the earth goddess Gaia. The following is taken from his article in the summer 1983 issue of The Green Revolution, quote, a bioregion is a part of the Earth's surface where there is more or less distinct geographical, biological, horticultural, and climatic identity from which the human inhabitants have developed a more or less distinct economic, social, and cultural identity. A watershed or river basin is perhaps the most obvious type of bioregion, though there can be many others, a valley, say, or a desert, or a plateau. The borders between them are usually not rigid, but the regions themselves are not hard to identify when once we pay attention to nature's patterns rather than those of some government. The bioregions, then, are nature's givens, the ecological truths of our earth. It would behoove us to pay more attention to them, and soon. As to how we pay attention, that takes us to self-sufficiency. There is not a single bioregion in this country that would not, if it looked to all its resources, be able to provide its own abundant food, its own energy, its own shelter and clothing, its own health and medical care, its own arts and manufactures and industries, and where this or that material resource may be missing, it is not long before human ingenuity is able to contrive a substitute. If necessity is the mother of invention, then self-sufficiency is its grandmother." Unquote. Sale asks the question whether it is right, quote, for New York City to import 29,000 tons of broccoli a year from California when it could just as easily get that amount of broccoli from its own bioregion, unquote. He wonders whether it is not madness for Manhattan to be totally dependent on the Sacramento and San Joaquin Valleys, 2,600 miles to the west, for almost all its vegetables and much of its fruit. He lists the costs for this cross-country supply line, the huge annual expenditures for fossil fuels, the heavy toll on the overloaded highway system, the increased pollution and congestion, and finally the decline in nutritional quality, 
owing to the large amount of chemical preservatives needed to keep food fresh during shipment. In New York and New Jersey, sale continues. Farmers are squeezed out of business, their land sold and turned into shopping malls and condominiums. People continue to crowd into megalopolitan anthills as vast expanses of rural America become increasingly impoverished. Agribusiness rips up the countryside, he solemnly intones, and rips off the public. The topsoil and water resources are depleted and exhausted. Pesticides and fertilizers pose health risks to both grower and consumer. It is true, Sale admits, that self-sufficiency demands some extra work and may require some change in eating habits, though only in the direction of fresher, more nutritional, more healthful foods. It is also true that an autarkic economy means giving up certain imports, though almost any that are truly valuable can be produced locally or substituted for in one way or another. According to Sale, a self-starting bioregion is more stable, it has more control over its economy, it is not at the mercy of boom and bust cycles, it is not another country's economic vassal. Quote, it is able to plan, to allocate its resources, to develop what it wants to develop at the safest pace in the most ecological manner. It is of necessity a more cohesive, more self-regarding, self-concerned spot of the earth, with a sense of place, of comradeship, of community, with the kind of character that is built on stability, pride, competence, control, and independence." Unquote. In his summary, Sale asserts that a self-contained bioregion brings out the best in people because it forces them to rely on their own devices, to depend on what is local and at hand, not on commodities and energy sources from some remote country whose emir can double or triple prices by merely issuing a U-case. Self-reliant individuals had best be able to cook and sow and harvest and chop wood and build and repair so they can become jacks and jills of all trades. Rather than simplify, bioregionalists will have to complexify in order to ward off the many dangers posed by monopoly and monotony. One of the most overlooked dangers is the economy of scale, which limits factories to a single product, people to a single job, jobs to a single motion, motions to a single purpose. Man has climbed to the top of the evolutionary heap, in Sale's opinion, precisely because of his capacity for diversification. Human organizations are most productive and dynamic when they are capable of responding to all sorts of challenges. They become brittle and unadaptable when robotized and specialized. When men and women are able to take on many jobs, learn many skills, live many roles, they reach their full potential, a bioregion that develops a multiplicity of ways of caring for itself, becomes textured and enriched. There is more than a hint of Rousseau's noble savage in Sale's Utopia. In one flight of fancy, he suggests that the American Indian should be his strongest supporters. Playing the politically correct game, he never utters a syllable about race. Though the success of any bioregion would depend primarily on the capabilities and talents of its inhabitants, Sale, bowing low to prevailing taboo, carefully omits mentioning the biological aspects and requirements of his proposed social order. Instead, he resorts to some heavy thinking about ecodynamism, empowerment, and an integrated state of maturity. 
Another proponent of ideas that harmonize to some degree with the ethnostate is the previously mentioned E.F. Schumacher, whose blistering attacks on huge, uncontrollable nation-states and appeals for reducing them to a governable size provide a strong endorsement for the politics of fission. Like Sale, however, Schumacher scrupulously avoids the subject of race in his plea for political, economic, and social devolution. Schumacher, a prominent British economist, goes well beyond considering his field of expertise to be the dismal science. He treats it as a dirty science that, in its present state, places far too much emphasis on mass production, profit, growth, and economies of scale, all to the great detriment of the environment. He advocates introducing moral and psychological factors into economics to balance its top-heavy materialism. Big corporations should be broken up into semi-independent units. Small businesses should be helped and encouraged. Every effort should be made to provide useful work to every adult. Claiming that only 3.5% of the Earth's inhabitants actually produce anything, and that only one-third do any work at all, Schumacher proposes increasing the proportion of producers to at least 20% of the workforce. Better to have millions working with their own tools and hands than to have robots and computers putting vast numbers of people out of work. To bring off this economic revolution successfully, some central planning would be needed, much to the dismay of free market enthusiasts who are against state planning per se, and would never agree that a planned economy can operate more efficiently and effectively in a small state than in a large one. Factoring morality and environment into economic programs would be a much easier task in small countries where the radical changes Schumacher suggests could be more closely monitored. Schumacher condemns capitalism for thriving on greed. He is against socialism for its tendency to develop massive, inhuman bureaucracies. What he would like to see, at least in the third world, would be two million villages inhabited by two billion villagers. He decries the spread of urbanization, the ever-declining number of small farms, and the takeover of agriculture by agribusiness with its soil-destroying and poisonous pesticides. He would place a cap of half a million on the population of cities. In many ways, Schumacher can be classified as a reactionary. He rails against nuclear energy, space exploration, and practically all scientific and technological work that does not promote some aspect of humanitarianism. He deplores the Faustian spirit, which has lifted man above all other animals, sent him off on fantastic missions to the edge of the solar system, and may one day take him to the edge of the universe. Schumacher is right about technology and science needing a more human face, but he is dead wrong if it must be achieved at the cost of padlocking our laboratories and returning to a bucolic existence. There is a fire in man that simply will not be extinguished. Because it occasionally flames out of control and does some damage is no reason for snuffing it out. Much of what dismays Schumacher is the ability of the West to impress its values on the Third World. Although he would probably be loath to admit it, the ethnostate, which favors the implosion, not the explosion of culture, and prefers cultural separation to cultural integration, would be a giant step towards realizing many of his ideas. Leopold Kor, whose devolutionary proposals for European nations have already been briefly noted, has proposed some specific limitations on area and population to bring about what he calls the optimum state. 
In his scholarly book, The Overdeveloped Nations, he writes that Plato's ideal city-state had a population of 5,040, and that Thomas More populated his utopian municipality with 6,000 families. Core's own proposed communities would have between 7,000 to 12,000 people, enough to provide basic amenities. For cultural amenities, theaters, art galleries, museums, churches, universities, the population should range from 50,000 to 200,000. The renowned city-states of ancient Greece and Renaissance Italy, he informs us, rarely had more than 200,000 inhabitants. Politics, Core writes, gets out of hand when the population goes much over the 200,000 mark. He warns that the normal functions of government will break down completely if the population of a city exceeds 12 to 15 million. Core pays particular attention to Aristotle's brilliant comments on the effect of size on human endeavors. No matter how strong the state, unbraked growth will constantly eat at its foundations. Core believes that size, when applied to states, has four components, number, density, integration, and velocity. All else being equal, a closely packed population is larger than the same number of people spread out over a wide area. A state consisting of several distinct population groups with different racial and cultural backgrounds will be less dense than a homogeneous state of the same size. A state with a bound-to-the-soil farm population with poor transportation will have less velocity and thus be classified as smaller than an industrialized, high-tech state with heavy commuter traffic even if the populations of both states are equal in number. According to Core, the reason some vast, overextended empires remained viable so long despite their size was their policy of decentralization. Power to the provinces, which became in effect independent states, was the policy of the later Roman Empire. The strength of the United States is, or was, its emphasis on federation. If Core is right, the usurpation of states' rights by the presidency, Congress, and the Supreme Court is the toxin that tolls America's death knell. Core points out that Britain, shorn of empire, is a richer and more successful state, at least when measured by the living standards of its citizens. Another reason for its present stability and prosperity is Parliament's recognition of the nationalist feelings of the Welsh and the Scots. In the 1959 British general elections, 80,000 Welsh voted for Plaid Cymru, the party that demands complete independence for Wales. If course theories are even partially valid, any oversized nation is doomed, especially if it is oversized in all of Corps' four categories. The Soviet Union fell apart since it exceeded Core's population limits, density, and centralization. Only the USSR's velocity component remained within acceptable bounds. In Core's opinion, the fragmentation of the United States will not lag far behind the disintegration of the Soviet Union. This means that for Americans, the ethnostate solution moves further into the realm of possibility and necessity with every passing day. Let us put aside for the moment the objection that the regrouping of population groups of similar genetic and cultural background into ethnostates would involve such an extensive loss of property and result in so much violence that the fiercest opponents to this revolutionary or, more accurately, this evolutionary step would be the white majorities. Let us admit that even under the most favorable conditions, any ethnostates carved out of the United States would face immense difficulties. The author concedes all these objections have some validity, 
but wishes to point out that the ideas being floated here are not concerned with the present, but with the future, not with conditions as they exist today or tomorrow, but with those that will exist the day after tomorrow, when Americans, and perhaps Europeans, will have reached the point to where they will have to choose between ethnostates or no states at all.